Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time. This week, we bring you two stories by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Montgomery is most well known for her Anne books, beginning with Anne of Green Gables. It was said she wrote stories of the heart, and the two stories I'll be reading are exactly that The Girl in the Photograph and The Letters. Although Anne was her most popular book, during her lifetime, Montgomery published 20 novels, over 500 short stories, an autobiography, and a book of poetry. I hope you enjoy these two stories of the heart by L. M. Montgomery. And now, The Letters. Just before the letter was brought to me that evening, I was watching the red November sunset from the library window. It was a stormy, unrestful sunset, gleaming angrily through the dark fir boughs that were now and again tossed suddenly and distressfully in the fitful gusts of wind. Below in the garden it was quite dark, and I could only see dimly the dead leaves that were whirling and dancing uncannily over the roseless paths. The poor dead leaves! Yet not quite dead, there was still enough unquiet life left in them to make them restless and forlorn. They hearkened yet to every call of the wind, who cared for them no longer, but only played freakishly with them and broke their rest. I felt sorry for the leaves as I watched them in that dull, weird twilight, and angry, in a petulant fashion that almost made me laugh, with the wind that would not leave them in peace. Why should they— and I, be vexed with these transient breaths of desire for a life that had passed us by. I was in the grip of a bitter loneliness that evening, so bitter and so insistent that I felt I could not face the future at all, even with such poor fragments of courage as I had gathered about me after father's death, hoping that they would at least suffice for my endurance, if not for my content. But now they fell away from me at sight of the emptiness of life. The emptiness. Ah, oh, it was from that I shrank. I could have faced pain and anxiety and heartbreak undauntingly, but I could not face that terrible, yawning, barren emptiness. I put my hands over my eyes to shut it out, but it pressed in upon my consciousness insistently and would not be ignored longer. The moment when a woman realizes that she has nothing to live for, neither love nor purpose nor duty, holds for her the bitterness of death. She is a brave woman indeed who can look upon such a prospect unquailingly, and I was not brave. I was weak and timid. Had not father often laughed mockingly at me because of it? It was three weeks since father had died, my proud, handsome, unrelenting old father, whom I had loved so intensely, and who had never loved me. I had always accepted this fact, unresentfully and unquestioningly, but it had steeped my whole life in its tincture of bitterness. Father had never forgiven me for two things. I had cost my mother's life, and I was not a son, to perpetuate the old name and carry on the family feud with the Frasers. I was a very lonely child, with no playmates or companions of any sort, 
and my girlhood was lonelier still. The only passion in my life was my love for my father. I would have done and suffered anything to win his affection in return. But all I ever did win was amused tolerance, and I was grateful for that, almost content. It was much to have something to love and be permitted to love it. If I had been a beautiful and spirited girl, I think father might have loved me. But I was neither. At first I did not think or care about my lack of beauty. Then, one day, I was alone in the beechwood. I was trying to disentangle my skirt which had caught on some thorny underbush. A young man came around the curve of the path, and, seeing my predicament, bent with murmured apology to help me. He had to kneel to do it and I saw a ray of sunshine falling through the beeches above us strike like a lance of light athwart the thick brown hair that pushed out from under his cap. Before I thought, I put out my hand and touched it softly. Then I blushed crimson with shame over what I had done. But he did not know. He never knew. When he had released my dress, he rose, and our eyes met for a moment as I timidly thanked him. I saw that he was good to look upon, tall and straight, with broad, stalwart shoulders and a dark, clean-cut face. He had a firm, sensitive mouth and kindly, pleasant, dark blue eyes. I never quite forgot the look in those eyes. It made my heart beat strangely, but it was only for a moment, and the next he had lifted his cap and passed on. As I went homeward, I wondered who he might be. He must be a stranger, I thought, probably a visitor in some of our new neighboring families. I wondered, too, if I should meet him again, and found the thought very pleasant. I knew few men, and they were all old like father, or at least elderly. They were the only people who ever came to our house, and they either teased me or overlooked me. None of them was at all like this young man I had met in the beechwood, nor ever could have been, I thought. When I reached home, I stopped before the big mirror that hung in the hall and did what I had never done before in my life, looked at myself very scrutinizingly and wondered if I had any beauty. I could only sorrowfully conclude that I had not. I was so slight and pale, and the thick black hair and dark eyes that might have been pretty in another woman seemed only to accentuate the lack of spirit and regularity in my features. I was still standing there, gazing wistfully at the mirrored face, with a strange sinking of spirit, when my father came through the hall, his riding whip in his hand. Seeing me, he laughed. "'Don't waste your time gazing into mirrors, Isabel,' he said carelessly. "'That might have been excusable in former ladies of Shirley, whose beauty might pardon and even adorn vanity. But with you it is only absurd.' The needle and the cookbook are all you need concern yourself with. I was accustomed to such speeches from him, but they had never hurt me so cruelly before. At that moment, I would have given all the world to only be beautiful. The next Sunday, I looked across the church, and in the Fraser pew I saw the young man I had met in the wood. He was looking at me with his arms folded over his breast, and on his brow a little frown that seemed somehow indicative of pain and surprise. I felt a miserable sense of disappointment. 
If he were the Frasier's guest, I could not expect to meet him again. Father hated the Frasiers. All the Shirleys hated them. It was an old feud, bitter and lasting, that had been as much our inheritance for generations as land and money. The only thing Father had ever taken pains to teach me was detestation for the Frasiers and all their works. I accepted this as I accepted all the other traditions of my race. I thought it did not matter much. The Frasiers were not likely to come my way, and hatred was a good, satisfying passion in lack of all else. I think I rather took pride in hating them, as became my blood. I did not look at the Fraser pew again, but outside, under the elms, we met him, standing in the dappling light and shadow. He looked very handsome, and a little sad. I could not help glancing back over my shoulder as father and I walked to the gate, and I saw him looking after us with that little frown, which again made me think something had hurt him. I liked better the smile he had worn in the beechwood, but I had an odd liking for the frown, too, and I think I had a foolish longing to go back to him, put up my fingers and smooth it away. So, Alan Fraser has come home, said my father. Alan Fraser? I repeated, with a strange, horrible feeling of coldness and chill coming over me like a shadow on a bright day. Alan Fraser! the son of old Malcolm Fraser of Glen Ellen, the son of our enemy. He had been living since childhood with his dead mother's people, so much I knew. And this was he. Something stung and smarted in my eyes. I think the sting and smart might have turned to tears if father had not been looking down at me. Yes. Didn't you see him in his father's pew? Oh, but I forgot. You are too demure to be looking at the young men in preaching— or out of it, Isabel. You are a model young woman. Odd that men never like the model young women. Coarse old Malcolm Fraser. What right has he to have a son like that, when I have nothing but a pulling girl? Remember, Isabel, that if you ever meet that young man, you are not to speak to him or look at him, or even intimate that you are aware of his existence. He is your enemy, and the enemy of your race. You will show him that you realize this. Of course, that ended it all. Though just what there had been to end would have been hard to say. Not long afterwards, I met Alan Fraser again, when I was out for a canter on my mare. He was strolling through the beechwood with a couple of big collies, and he stopped short as I drew near. I had to do it. Father had decreed. My surely pride demanded that I should do it. I looked at him unseemingly in the face, struck my mare a blow with my whip, and dashed past him. I even felt angry, I think, that a Fraser should have the power to make me feel so badly in doing my duty. After that, I had forgotten. There was nothing to make me remember, for I never met Alan Fraser again. The years slipped by, one by one, so like each other in their colorlessness that I forgot to take account of them. I only knew that I grew older, and that it did not matter since there was nobody to care. One day they brought father in, white-lipped and groaning. His mare had thrown him, and he was never to walk again, although he lived for five years. Those five years had been the happiest of my life. For the first time, I was necessary to someone. There was something for me to do which nobody else could do so well. 
I was father's nurse and companion, and I found my pleasure in tending him and amusing him, soothing his hours of pain and brightening his hours of ease. People said I did my duty toward him. I had never liked that word duty since the day I had ridden past Alan Fraser in the Beechwood. I could not connect it with what I did for father. It was my delight because I loved him. I did not mind the moods and the irritable outbursts that drove others from him. But now he was dead, and I sat in the sullen dusk, wishing that I need not go on with life either. The loneliness of the big echoing house weighed on my spirit. I was solitary, without companionship. I looked out on the outside world where the only sign of human habitation visible to my eyes was the light twinkling out from the library window of Glen Ellen, on the dark fir hill two miles away. By that light, I knew Alan Fraser must have returned from his long sojourn abroad, for it only shone when he was at Glen Ellen. He still lived there, something of a hermit, people said. He had never married, and he cared nothing for society. His companions were books and dogs and horses. He was given to scientific researches and wrote much for the reviews. He traveled a great deal. So much I knew in a vague way. I even saw him occasionally in church, and never thought the years had changed him much, save that his face was sadder and sterner than of old, and his hair had become iron-gray. People said that he had inherited and cherished the old hatred of the Shirleys, that he was very bitter against us. I believed it. He had the face of a good hater, or lover, a man who could play with no emotion, but must take it in all earnestness and intensity. When it was quite dark, the housekeeper brought in the lights and handed me a letter which, she said, a man had just brought up from the village post office. I looked at it curiously before I opened it, wondering from whom it was. It was postmarked from a city several miles away, and the firm decided rather peculiar handwriting was strange to me. I had no correspondence. After father's death I received a few perfunctory notes of condolence from distant relatives and family friends. They had hurt me cruelly, for they seemed to exhale a subtle spirit of congratulation on my being released from a long and unpleasant martyrdom of attendance on an invalid that quite overrode the decorous phrases of conventional sympathy in which they were expressed. I hated those letters for their implied injustice. I was not thankful for my release. I missed father miserably and longed passionately for the very tasks and vigils that had evoked their pity. The letter did not seem like one of those. I opened it and took out some stiff, blackly written sheets. They were undated, and turning to the last, I saw that they were unsigned. With a not unpleasant tingling of interest, I sat down by my desk to read. The letter began abruptly. You will not know by whom this is written. Do not seek to know, now or ever. It is only from behind the veil of your ignorance of my identity that I can ever write to you fully and freely as I wish to write, can say what I wish to say in words denied to a formal and conventional expression of sympathy. Dear lady, let me say to you thus what is in my heart. I know what your sorrow is, and I think I know what your loneliness must be. The sorrow of a broken tie, 
the loneliness of a life thrown emptily back upon itself. I know how you loved your father, how you must have loved him if those eyes and brow and mouth speak truth, for they tell of a nature divinely rich and deep, giving of its wealth and tenderness ungrudgingly to those who are so happy as to be the object of its affection. To such a nature, bereavement must bring a depth and an agony of grief unknown to shallower souls. I know what your father's helplessness and need of you meant to you. I know that now life must seem to you a broken and embittered thing, and knowing this, I venture to send this greeting across the gulf of strangerhood between us, telling you that my understanding sympathy is fully and freely yours, and bidding you take heart for the future, which now it may be looks so heartless and hopeless to you. Believe me, dear lady, it will be neither. Courage will come to you with the kind days. You will find noble tasks to do, beautiful and gracious duties waiting along your path. The pain and suffering of the world never dies, and while it lives, there will be work for such as you to do, and in the doing of it, you will find comfort and strength and the highest joy of living. I believe in you. I believe you will make of your life a beautiful and worthy thing. I give you Godspeed for the years to come. Out of my own loneliness, I, an unknown friend who has never clasped your hand, send this message to you. I understand. I have always understood. And I say to you, be of good cheer. To say that this strange letter was a mystery to me seems an inadequate way of stating the matter. I was completely bewildered, nor could I even guess who the writer might be, think and ponder as I might. The letter itself implied that the writer was a stranger, the handwriting was evidently that of a man, and I knew no man who could or would have sent such a letter to me. The very mystery stung me to interest. As for the letter itself, it brought me an uplift of hope and inspiration, such as I would not have believed possible an hour earlier. It rang so truly and sincerely, and the mere thought that somewhere I had a friend who cared enough to write it, even in such odd fashion, was so sweet that I was half ashamed of the difference it made in my outlook. Sitting there, I took courage and made a compact with myself that I would justify the writer's faith in me, that I would take up my life as something to be worthily lived for all good, to the disregard of my own selfish sorrow and shrinking. I would seek for something to do, for interests which would bind me to my fellow creatures, for tasks which would lessen the pains and perils of humankind. An hour before, this would not have seemed to me possible. Now it seemed the right and natural thing to do. A week later another letter came. I welcomed it with an eagerness which I feared was most childish. It was a much longer letter than the first, and was written in quite a different strain. There was no apology for, or explanation of, the motive for writing. It was as if the letter were merely one of permitted and established correspondence between old friends. It began with a witty, sparkling review of a new book the writer had just read, and passed from this to crisp comments on the great events, political, scientific, artistic, of the day. The whole letter was pungent, interesting, delightful, 
an impersonal essay on a dozen vital topics of life and thought. Only at the end was a personal note struck. Are you interested in these things? ran the paragraph. In what is being done and suffered and attained in the great busy world? I think you must be, for I have seen you and read what is written in your face. I believe you care for these things as I do, that your being thrills to the still, sad music of humanity, that the songs of the poets I love find an echo in your spirit, and the aspirations of all struggling souls a sympathy in your heart. Believing this, I have written freely to you, taking a keen pleasure in thus revealing my thoughts and visions to one who will understand. For I too am friendless, in the sense of one standing alone, shut out from the sweet, intimate communion of feeling and opinion that may be held with the hearts of friends. Shall you have read this as a friend, I wonder? A candid, uncritical, understanding friend? Let me hope it, dear lady. I was expecting the third letter when it came, but not until it did come did I realize what my disappointment would have been if it had not. After that, every week brought me a letter. Soon those letters were the greatest interest in my life. I had given up all attempts to solve the mystery of their coming and was content to enjoy them for themselves alone. From week to week I looked forward to them with an eagerness that I would hardly confess, even to myself. And such letters as they were, growing longer and fuller and freer as time went on, such wise, witty, brilliant, pungent letters, stimulating all my torpid life into tingling zest. I had begun to look abroad in my small world for worthy work, and found plenty to do. My unknown friend evidently kept track of my expanding efforts, for he commented and criticized, encouraged and advised freely. There was a humor in his letters that I liked. It leavened them with its sanity and reacted on me most wholesomely, counteracting many of the morbid tendencies and influences of my life. I found myself striving to live up to the writer's ideal of philosophy and ambition as pictured, often unconsciously, in his letters. They were an intellectual stimulant as well. To understand them fully, I found it necessary to acquaint myself thoroughly with the literature and art, the science and the politics they touched upon. After every letter there was something new for me to hunt out and learn and assimilate, until my old, narrow mental attitude had so broadened and deepened, sweeping out into circles of thought I had never known or imagined that I hardly knew myself. They had been coming for a year before I began to reply to them. I had often wished to do so. There were so many things I wanted to say and discuss— but it seemed foolish to write letters that could not be sent. One day a letter came that kindled my imagination and stirred my heart and soul so deeply that they insistently demanded answering expression. I sat down at my desk and wrote a full reply to it. Safe in the belief that the mysterious friend to whom it was written would never see it, I wrote with a perfect freedom and a total lack of self-consciousness that I could never have attained otherwise. The writing of that letter gave me a pleasure second only to that which the reading of his brought. For the first time, I discovered the delight of revealing my thought unhindered by the conventions. 
Also, I understood better why the writer of those letters had written them. Doubtless he had enjoyed doing so, and was not impelled thereto simply by a purely philanthropical wish to help me. When my letter was finished, I sealed it up and locked it away in my desk, with a smile at my middle-aged folly. What I wondered would all my sedate, serious friends, my associates of mission and hospital committees, think if they knew. Well, everybody has, or should have, a pet nonsense in their life. I did not think mine was any sillier than some others I knew, and to myself I admitted that it was very sweet. I knew if those letters ceased to come all savor would go out of my life. After that I wrote a reply to every letter I received and kept them all locked up together. It was delightful. I wrote out all my doings and perplexities and hopes and plans and wishes. Yes, and my dreams— the secret romance of it all made me look on my existence with joyous, contented eyes. Gradually, a change crept over the letters I received. Without ever affording the slightest clue to the identity of the writer, they grew more intimate and personal. A subtle, caressing note of tenderness breathed from them and thrilled my heart curiously. I felt as if I were being drawn into the writer's life admitted into the most sacred recesses of his thoughts and feelings. Yet it was all done so subtly, so delicately, that I was unconscious of the change until I discovered it in reading over the older letters and comparing them with the later ones. Finally, a letter came. My first love letter. And surely never was a love letter received under stranger circumstances. It began abruptly, as all the letters had begun, plunging into the middle of the writer's strain of thought without any preface. The first words drove the blood to my heart and then sent it flying hotly all over my face. I love you. I must say it at last. Have you not guessed it before? It was trembling on my pen in every line I have written to you, yet I have never dared to shape it into words before. I know not how I dare now. I only know that I must. What a delight to write it out and know that you will read it. Tonight the mood is on me to tell you recklessly and lavishly, never pausing to stint or weigh words. Sweetheart, I love you, love you, love you. Dear, true, faithful woman's soul, I love you with all the heart of a man. Ever since I first saw you, I have loved you. I can never come to tell you so in spoken words. I can only love you from afar, and tell my love under the guise of impersonal friendship. It matters not to you, but it matters more than all else in life to me. I am glad that I love you, dear. Glad, glad, glad. There was much more, for it was a long letter. When I had read it, I buried my burning face in my hands, trembling with happiness. This strange confession of love meant so much to me. My heart leapt forth to meet it with answering love. What mattered it that we could never meet, that I could not even guess who my love was? Somewhere in the world was a love that was mine alone, and mine wholly, and mine forever. 
What mattered his name or his station or the mysterious barrier between us? Spirit leaped to spirit, unhindered over the fettered bounds of matter and time. I loved and was beloved. Nothing else mattered. I wrote my answer to his letter. I wrote it fearlessly and unstintedly. Perhaps I could not have written so freely if the letter were to have been read by him. As it was, I poured out the riches of my love as fully as he had done. I kept nothing back, and across the gulf between us I vowed a faithful and enduring love in response to his. The next day I went to town on business with my lawyers. Neither of the members of the firm was in when I called, but I was an old client, and one of the clerks showed me into the private office to wait. As I sat down, my eyes fell on a folded letter lying on the table beside me. With a shock of surprise, I recognized the letter. I could not be mistaken. I should have recognized it anywhere. The letter was lying by its envelope, so folded that only the middle third of the page was visible. An irresistible impulse swept over me. Before I could reflect that I had no business to touch the letter, that perhaps it was unfair to my unknown friend to seek to discover his identity when he wished to hide it, I had turned the letter over and seen the signature. I laid it down again and stood up, dizzy, breathless, unseeing. Like a woman in a dream, I walked through the outer office and onto the street. I must have walked on for blocks before I became conscious of my surroundings. The name I had seen signed to that letter was Alan Fraser. No doubt the reader has long ago guessed it, has wondered why I had not. The fact remains that I had not. Out of the whole world, Alan Fraser was the last man whom I should have suspected to be the writer of those letters. Alan Fraser, my hereditary enemy, who, I have been told, cherished the old feud so faithfully and bitterly, and hated our very name. And yet now I wondered at my long blindness. No one else could have written those letters. No one but him. I read them over one by one when I reached home. Now that I possessed the key, he revealed himself in every line, expression, and thought. And he loved me! I thought of the old feud and hatred. I thought of my pride and traditions— they seemed like the dust and ashes of outworn things, things to be smiled at and cast aside. I took out all the letters I had written, all except the last one, sealed them up in a parcel, and directed it to Alan Fraser. Then, summoning my groom, I bade him ride to Glen Ellen with it. His look of amazement almost made me laugh, but after he was gone I felt dizzy and frightened at my own daring. When the autumn darkness came down, I went to my room and dressed as the woman dresses who awaits the one man of all the world. I hardly knew what I hoped or expected, but I was all a-thrill with a nameless, inexplicable happiness. I admit, I looked very eagerly into the mirror when I was done, and I thought that the result was not unpleasing. Beauty had never been mine, but a faint reflection of it came over me in the tremulous flash and excitement of the moment. Then the maid came up to tell me that Alan Fraser was in the library. I went down, 
with my cold hands tightly clasped behind me. He was standing by the library table, a tall, broad-shouldered man, with the light striking upward on his dark, sensitive face and iron-gray hair. When he saw me, he came quickly forward. So you know, and you are not angry. Your letters told me so much. I have loved you since that day in the beechwood, Isabel. Isabel. His eyes were kindling into mine. He held my hand in a close, impetuous clasp. His voice was infinitely caressing as he pronounced my name. I had never heard it since father died. I had never heard it at all so musically and tenderly uttered. My ancestors might have turned in their graves just then, but it mattered not. Living love had driven out dead hatred. Isabel, he went on. There was one letter unanswered, the last. I went to my desk, took out the last letter I had written, and gave it to him in silence. When he read it, I stood in a shadowy corner and watched him, wondering if life could always be as sweet as this. When he had finished, he turned to me and held out his arms. I went to them as a bird to her nest, and with his lips against mine, the old feud was blotted out forever. And now, The Girl and the Photograph When I heard that Peter Austin was in Vancouver, I hunted him up. I had met Peter ten years before when I had gone east to visit my father's people, and had spent a few weeks with an uncle in Croydon. The Austins lived across the street from Uncle Tom, and Peter and I had struck up a friendship. Although he was a hobbledehoy of awkward sixteen, and I, at twenty-two, was older and wiser, and more dignified than I've ever been since or ever expect to be again. Peter was a jolly little round, freckled chap. He was all right when no girls were around. But when they were, he retired within himself like a misanthropic oyster, and was about as interesting. This was the one point upon which we always disagreed. Peter couldn't endure girls. I was devoted to them by the wholesale. The Croydon girls were very pretty and vivacious, I had a score of flirtations during my brief sojourn among them. But when I went away, the face I carried in my memory was not that of any girl with whom I had walked and driven and played the game of hearts. It was ten years ago, but I had never been quite able to forget that girl's face. Yet I had seen it but once and then only for a moment. I had gone for a solitary ramble in the woods over the river, and in a lonely little valley dim with pines, where I thought myself alone, I had come suddenly upon her, standing ankle-deep in fern on the bank of a brook, the late evening sunshine falling yellowly on her uncovered dark hair. She was very young, no more than sixteen, yet the face and eyes were already those of a woman. Such a face! Beautiful, yes, but I thought of that afterward when I was alone. With that face before my eyes, I thought only of its purity and sweetness, of the lovely soul and rich mind looking out of the great, grayish-blue eyes, which in the dimness of the pine shadows looked almost black. 
There was something in the face of that child woman I had never seen before, and was destined never to see again in another face. Careless boy though I was, it stirred me to the deeps. I felt that she must have been waiting forever in that pine valley for me, and that in finding her I had found all of good that life could offer me. I would have spoken to her, but before I could shape my greeting into words that should not seem rude or presumptuous, she had turned and gone, stepping lightly across the brook and vanishing in the maple copse beyond. For no more than ten seconds had I gazed into her face, and the soul of her, the real woman behind the fair outwardness, had looked back into my eyes. But I had never been able to forget it. When I had returned home, I questioned my cousins diplomatically as to who she might be. I felt strangely reluctant to do so. It seemed in some way sacrilege. Yet only by so doing could I hope to discover her. They could tell me nothing. Nor did I meet her again during the remainder of my stay in Croydon, although I never went anywhere without looking for her, and haunted the Pine Valley daily in the hope of seeing her again. My disappointment was so bitter that I laughed at myself. I thought I was a fool to feel thus about a girl I had met for a moment in a chance ramble, a mere child at that, with her hair still hanging in its long, glossy schoolgirl braid. But when I remembered her eyes, my wisdom forgave me. Well, that was ten years ago. In those ten years the memory had, I must confess, grown dimmer. In our busy Western life, a man had not much time for sentimental recollections. Yet I had never been able to care for another woman. I wanted to. I wanted to marry and settle down. I had come to the time of life when a man wearies of drifting and begins to hanker for a calm anchorage in some snug haven of his own. But somehow I shirked the matter. It seemed rather easier to let things slide. At this stage Peter came west. He was something in a bank and was as round and jolly as ever. But he had evidently changed his attitude toward girls, for his rooms were full of their photos. They were stuck around everywhere, and they were all pretty. Either Peter had excellent taste, or the Croydon photographers know how to flatter. But there was one on the mantel which attracted my attention especially. If the photo were to be trusted, the girl was quite the prettiest I had ever seen. Peter, what pretty girl's picture is this on your mantel? I called out to Peter, who was in his bedroom, donning evening dress for some function. That's my cousin Mary and Lindsay, he answered. She's rather nice-looking, isn't she? Lives in Croydon now. Used to live up the river at Chesilhurst. Didn't you ever chance across her when you were in Croydon? No, I said. If I had, I wouldn't have forgotten her face. Well, she'd only be a kid then, of course. She's twenty-six now. Marion is a mighty nice girl, but she's bound to be an old maid. She's got notions, ideals, she calls them. All the Croydon fellows have been in love with her at one time or another, but they might as well have made up to a statue. Marion really hasn't a spark of feeling or sentiment in her. Her looks are the best part of her, although she's confoundedly clever. Peter spoke rather squiffily. I suspected that he had been one of the smitten swains himself. I looked at the photo for a few minutes longer, admiring it more every minute, and when I heard Peter coming out, I did an unjustifiable thing. I took that photo and put it in my pocket. 
I expected Peter would make a fuss when he missed it, but that very night the house in which he lived was burned to the ground. Peter escaped with the most important of his goods and chattels, but all the counterfeit presentments of his dear divinities went up in smoke. If he ever thought particularly of Marion Lindsay's photograph, he must have supposed it shared the fate of the others. As for me, I propped my ill-gotten treasure up on my mantle and worshipped it for a fortnight. At the end of that time I went boldly to Peter and told him I wanted him to introduce me by letter to his dear cousin and ask her to agree to a friendly correspondence with me. Oddly enough, I did not do this without some reluctance, in spite of the fact that I was as much in love with Marion Lindsay as I was as it was possible to be through the medium of a picture. I thought of the girl I had seen in the pine wood, and felt an inward shrinking from a step that might divide me from her forever. But I rated myself for this nonsense. It was in the highest degree unlikely that I should ever meet the girl of the pines again. If she were still living, she was probably some other man's wife. I would think no more of it. Peter whistled when he heard what I had to say. "'Course I'll do it, old man,' he said, obligingly. "'But I warn you, I don't think it will be much use. Marion isn't the sort of girl to open up a correspondence in such a fashion. However, I'll do the best I can for you.' "'Do. Tell her I'm a respectable fellow, with no violent habits and all that. I'm in earnest, Peter. I want to make that girl's acquaintance, and this seems the only way at present. I can't get off just now for a trip east.' Explain all this, and use your cousinly influence on my behalf, if you possess any. Peter grinned. It's not the most graceful job in the world you're putting me on, Curtis, he said. I don't mind owning up now that I was pretty far gone on marrying myself two years ago. It's all over now, but it was bad while it lasted. Perhaps Marion will consider your request more favorably if I put it in the light of a favor to myself. She might feel that she owes me something for wrecking my life. Peter grinned again and looked at the one photo he had contrived to rescue from the fire. It was a pretty snub-nosed little girl. She would have never consoled me for the loss of Marion Lindsay. But every man to his taste. In due time, Peter sought me out to give me his cousin's answer. Congratulations, Curtis. You've out-Caesared Caesar. You've conquered without even going and seeing. Marion agrees to a friendly correspondence with you. I am amazed, I admit. Even though I did paint you up as a sort of Sir Galahad and Lancelot combined, I'm not used to seeing proud Marion do stunts like that. And it rather takes my breath. I wrote to Marion Lindsay, after one farewell dream of the girl under the pines. When Marion's letters began to come regularly, I forgot the other one altogether. Such letters... Such witty, sparkling, clever, womanly, delightful letters. They completed the conquest her picture had begun. Before we had corresponded six months, I was besottedly in love with this woman, whom I had never seen. Finally, I wrote and told her so, and I asked her to be my wife. A fortnight later, her answer came. She said frankly that she believed she had learned to care for me during our correspondence, but that she thought we should meet in person before coming to a definite understanding. Could I not arrange to visit Croydon in the summer? Until then, we would better continue on our present footing. I agreed to this, but I considered myself practically engaged. I permitted myself to use a decidedly lover-like tone in my letters henceforth, 
and I hailed it as a favorable omen, that I was not rebuked for this, although Marion's own letters still retained their pleasant, simple friendliness. Peter had at first tormented me mercilessly about the affair, but when he saw I did not like his chafe, he stopped it. Peter was always a good fellow. He realized that I regarded the matter seriously, and he saw me off when I left for the East with a grin tempered by honest sympathy and understanding. "'Good luck to you,' he said. "'If you win Marion Lindsay, you'll win a pearl among women. I haven't been able to grasp her taking to you in this fashion, though. It's so unlike Marion. But, since she undoubtedly has, you are a lucky man.' I arrived in Croydon at dusk and went to Uncle Tom's. There I found them busy with preparations for a party to be given that night in honor of a girlfriend who was visiting my cousin Edna. I was secretly annoyed, for I wanted to hasten at once to Marion, but I couldn't decently get away, and on second thoughts I was consoled by the reflection that she would probably come to the party. I knew she belonged to the same social set as Uncle Tom's girls. I should, however, have preferred our meeting to be under different circumstances. From my stand behind the palms in a corner, I eagerly scanned the guests as they arrived. Suddenly, my heart gave a bound. Marion Lindsay had just come in. I recognized her at once from her photograph. It had not flattered her in the least. Indeed, it had not done her justice, for her exquisite coloring of hair and complexion were quite lost in it. She was, moreover, gowned with a taste and smartness eminently admirable in the future Mrs. Eric Curtis. I felt a thrill of proprietary pride as she stepped out from behind the palms. She was talking to Aunt Grace, but her eyes fell on me. I expected a little start of recognition, for I had sent her an excellent photograph of myself, but her gaze was one of blankest unconsciousness. I felt something like disappointment at her non-recognition, but I consoled myself by the reflection that people often fail to recognize other people whom they have only seen in photographs, no matter how good the likeness may be. I waylaid Edna, who was passing at that time, and said, Edna, I want you to introduce me to the girl who's talking to your mother. Edna laughed. So, you have succumbed at first sight to our Croydon beauty? Of course I'll introduce you, but I warn you beforehand that she is the most incorrigible flirt in Croydon or out of it, so take care. It jarred me on to hear Marion called a flirt. It seemed so out of keeping with her letters and the womanly delicacy and fineness revealed in them. But I reflected that women sometimes find it hard to forgive another woman who absorbs more than her share of lovers and generally take their revenge by dubbing her a flirt, whether she deserves the name or not. We had crossed the room during this reflection. Marion turned and stood before us, smiling at Edna, but evincing no recognition whatever of myself. It is a piquant experience to find yourself awaiting an introduction to a girl to whom you are virtually engaged. Dorothy, dear, said Edna, this is my cousin, Mr. Curtis, from Vancouver. Eric, this is Miss Armstrong. I suppose I bowed. Habit carries us mechanically through many impossible situations. I don't know what I looked like or what I said, if anything. I don't suppose I betrayed my dire confusion, for Edna went off unconcernedly without another glance at me. Dorothy Armstrong, 
gracious powers, who, where, why? If this girl was Dorothy Armstrong, who was Marion Lindsay? To whom was I engaged? There was some awful mistake somewhere, for it could not be possible that there were two girls in Croydon who looked exactly like the photograph reposing in my valise at that very moment. I stammered like a schoolboy. I, oh, I, uh, your face seems familiar to me, Miss Armstrong. I, I, I think I must have seen your photograph somewhere. Probably in Peter Austin's collection, smiled Miss Armstrong. He had one of mine before he was burned out. How is he? Peter? Oh, he's well, I replied vaguely. I was thinking a hundred words to the second, but my thoughts arrived nowhere. I was staring at Miss Armstrong like a man bewitched. She must have thought me a veritable booby. Oh, uh, by the way, can you tell me, do you know a Miss Lindsay in Croydon? Miss Armstrong looked surprised and a little bored. Evidently, she was not used to having newly introduced young men inquire about another girl. Marion Lindsay? Oh, yes. Is she here tonight? I asked. No, Marion is not going to parties just now, owing to the recent death of her aunt, who lived with them. Does she... Oh, does she look like you at all? I inquired idiotically. Amusement glimmered over Miss Armstrong's boredom. She probably concluded that I was some harmless lunatic. Like me? Not at all. There couldn't be two people more dissimilar. Marion is quite dark. I am fair. And our features are altogether unlike. Why, good evening, Jack. Yes, I believe I did promise you this dance. She bowed to me and skimmed away with Jack. I saw Aunt Grace bearing down upon me and fled incontinently. In my own room, I flung myself on a chair and tried to think the matter out. Where did the mistake come in? How had it happened? I shut my eyes and conjured up the vision of Peter's room that day. I remembered vaguely that when I had picked up Dorothy Armstrong's picture, I had noticed another photograph that had fallen face down beside it. That must have been Marion Lindsay's, and Peter had thought I meant it. And now what a position I was in! I was conscious of bitter disappointment. I had fallen in love with Dorothy Armstrong's photograph. As far as external semblance goes, it was she whom I loved. I was practically engaged to another woman, a woman who, in spite of our correspondence, seemed to me now, in the shock of this discovery, a stranger. It was useless to tell myself that it was the mind and soul revealed in those letters that I loved, and that the mind and soul were Marion Lindsay's. It was useless to remember that Peter had said she was pretty. Exteriorly, she was a stranger to me. Hers was not the face that had risen before me for nearly a year as the face of the woman I loved. Was ever unlucky wretch in such a predicament before? Well, there was only one thing to do. I must stand by my word. Marion Lindsay was the woman I had asked to marry me, whose answer I must shortly go to receive. If that answer were yes, I must accept the situation and banish all thought of Dorothy Armstrong's pretty face. Next evening, at sunset, I went to Glenwood, the Lindsay place. Doubtless an eager lover might have gone earlier, 
but an eager lover I certainly was not. Probably Marion was expecting me, and had given orders concerning me, for the maid who came to the door conveyed me to a little room behind the stairs, a room which, as I felt as soon as I entered it, was a woman's pet domain. In its books and pictures and flowers it spoke eloquently of dainty femininity. Somehow it suited the letters. I did not feel quite so much the stranger as I had felt. Nevertheless, when I heard a light footfall on the stairs, my heart beat painfully. I stood up and turned to the door. But I could not look up. The footsteps came nearer. I knew that a white hand swept aside the portier at the entrance. I knew that she had entered the room and was standing before me. With an effort, I raised my eyes and looked at her. She stood tall and gracious, in a ruby splendor of sunset falling through the window beside her. The light quivered like living radiance over a dark, proud head, a white throat, and a face before whose perfect loveliness the memory of Dorothy Armstrong's laughing prettiness faded like a star in the sunrise, never more in the fullness of the day to be remembered. Yet it was not of her beauty, I thought, as I stood spellbound before her. I seemed to see a dim little valley full of whispering pines, and a girl standing under the shadows looking at me with the same great grayish-blue eyes which gazed upon me now from Marion Lindsay's face. The same face, matured into gracious womanhood, that I had seen ten years ago, and loved, I loved ever since. I took an unsteady step forward. Marion, I said. When I got home that night, I burned Dorothy Armstrong's photograph. The next day, I went to my cousin Tom, who owns the fashionable studio of Croydon, and binding him over to secrecy, sought one of Marion's latest photographs from him. It is the only secret I have ever kept from my wife. Before we were married, Marion told me something. I always remembered you as you looked that day under the pines, she said. I was only a child, but I think I loved you then and ever afterwards. When I dreamed my girl's dream of love, your face rose up before me. I had the advantage of you that I knew your name. I had heard of you. When Peter wrote about you, I knew who you were. That was why I agreed to correspond with you. I was afraid it was a forward, an unwomanly thing to do. But it seemed my chance for happiness, and I took it. I am glad I did. I did not answer in words. But lovers will know how I did answer. And those are our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed The Letters and The Girl and the Photograph by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is Not Your Mother's Storytime.